Hi everyone, this is a trigger warning. Today's episode discusses issues around suicide. Welcome to episode 12 of What Kind of Country? I'm Victoria Meakin and I'm moving with my family to the beautiful country of New Zealand. It's 2021 and the world is still in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic. So myself, my husband and our two young children are governed by New Zealand's very strict managed isolation rules, meaning we'll be spending two weeks in a government mandated hotel. And I'm delighted to say that I'll be dedicating part of that time to speaking remotely to some very generous Kiwis who've given up their time to help me answer the question, in 2021, what kind of country are we moving to? Coming up today, in a longer episode than usual, I speak to someone familiar to so many New Zealanders, Mike King, who describes his fascinating journey from stand-up comedian to passionate mental health advocate. My guest today is a very well-known New Zealander and entertainer who has for more than a decade been dedicating his time to educating Kiwis about mental health and raising money to help young people who need mental health support. After years as a celebrated stand-up comedian and TV host, Mike King launched the Nutters Club radio show in 2009 following his own experience with mental illness and addiction. Described as the world's first online and offline media phenomenon that has changed and saved lives, it's also spawned a huge Facebook support network. In 2012, Mike founded the Key to Life Charitable Trust, which promotes suicide prevention and suicide awareness. The trust runs the I Am Hope Youth and Community Focus Support Group, which in turn runs the popular fundraiser Gumboot Friday, where Kiwis are encouraged to put their gumboots on, give a gold coin and take a walk in the shoes of someone with depression for just one day. Hi, Mike. Hi, Vic. That sounded like a mouthful. It's really weird when you hear your life played out like that. It's it's a surreal experience, isn't it? I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I've, it's I don't. I'm just dumbstruck by it. All. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, ask you where you get over the dumbstruckness. Three more general questions to uh, kind of lead you into this chat that I'm actually putting to all interviewees for this podcast, and they're more general sort of lifestyle questions about New Zealand to start off with, if you wouldn't sure. mind. So the first one is: I wondered if you could tell me what is your favourite New Zealand beach? My favourite New Zealand beach. Well, that would be uh, Bowen Town, uh, which is the southern end of Waihi Beach. Um, we call it the old people's end of Waihi Beach. Down at Waihi Beach campsite is um, where all the young people go and all of us oldies for a quiet life. We go down to the Bowen Town end. It's a, it's a beautiful little spot. And it, there's a surfing beach on one side. And if it's too surfy down there and the kids feel uh, unsafe, we can go over to Anzac Bay, which is just this lovely little wee pond on the other side. So it's a, one of the most beautiful spots in New Zealand. And uh, leading on from that, where in New Zealand would you recommend I take my young family camping? Uh, Bowen Town. Mm-hmm. Or Abel Tasman. Abel Tasman, you know, you're, you're going to be living in the South Island. Abel Tasman would be the ultimate place that you could take your kids. There's some beautiful little campgrounds. There's some great hikes and there's some great kayaking spots there as well. And uh, you're well catered for in all of those areas. 
one final question along these lines for now. Could you name one thing that you think every visitor to New Zealand should experience? Oh, um, uh, Rotorua. Yeah, Rotorua. It's, you know, it's it's been our tourism figurehead for a, for a long, long time. And it will give you a good look at, at my culture, uh, the Maori culture. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful sight to see. Fantastic. Thank you for those suggestions. I'm adding them to an ever-growing list for this podcast. I'm going to move on now to talk to you, Mike, about this message of hope that you've dedicated so much of your life to delivering. You're very passionate about being open about your own mental health battles and how if we make ourselves vulnerable, we can help others, particularly kids, yep. open up yep. and feel safe. I wondered, Mike, was there a point in your public life back in the day when you made a conscious decision to speak openly about mental health? And at the time, was that a difficult thing to do? Okay, so in uh, 2012, a wonderful Auckland District Court judge gave me 200 hours of community service for riding my motorbike without a license. And while I was sitting at home trying to figure out how I was going to serve my community, I um, got a phone call from a principal in Northland at one of the tiny area schools, Taipa Area School in Northland and Kaitaia College. Now, these two places had lost um, 12, 9 or 12 young people to suicide in the space of a couple of months. And uh, he called me because I had the Nutters Club show. I talked openly about mental health issues, and he just asked me if I could come up there and, you know, basically cheer the kids up. And Mm -hmm. being an adult and thinking I knew the answer to everything, basically what I was going to go up there and discuss with these kids or tell these kids that they had to stop killing themselves because it was impacting greatly on the people that they love. Obviously, I was going up there to make them feel guilty about even thinking um, about taking their own lives. And I was going to do it with jokes. Why? Because I'm an idiot. So anyway, I, I went up up to type area school. Uh, there's about 150 students at the school. And I remember walking into the hall and there was a real heaviness, a real sadness in the room. And in the time it took me to walk from the back of the hall to the front of the hall and face these uh, students, I realized that jokes weren't going to be appropriate. And these kids didn't need another perfect adult in their life coming up there and lecturing them on what they should be doing. So in that moment, I turned to these kids, I paused for about 30 seconds, and then I just started talking about my life, my life growing up, and focusing in particular on the conversations, the negative conversations I've been having with myself my whole life. And As I started talking, these kids went from leaning back in their chairs, almost with disdain, going, oh yeah, here's another old coot coming up here and telling us what to do. And from leaning back in their chairs, they started looking at each other. I'd watch them looking down the rows as if to say, can you believe this guy? This guy's talking about himself. And what I didn't realize early on was, by my talking about those negative conversations that I'd have with myself, constantly thinking I wasn't good enough, other people were better than me, 
they recognized their journey in my story. And um, I told them about, you know, how that led me to alcoholism and drug addiction and to finally in 2007 wanting to end my own life. And um, because I'd taken off my mask, when I finished my talk, um, the kids decided they trust me and they took off their masks. And what they showed me was how amazing this generation of young people really are. And um, when I finished the, the talk and it was all over, one of the uh, teachers came to me and she goes, Mike, we've got five young people on Suicide Watch who were really inspired by your story. And I was wondering if you could go and have a chat with them. And I was like, well, okay, sure. I've never spoken to an openly suicidal kid before, but sure, I'll, I'll go and have a chat with them. So I went into this room expecting to see a bunch of crying teenagers and these kids were just like my kids and your kids. They were all sitting there with mm -hmm. smiles on their faces. And I walked in, I took one look, and I went, oh, there you go. Oh, good. Oh, well, apparently you guys want to kill yourself. Yep. I'm like, okay. So I looked at the first kid, and I said, so, you know, what's up with you? And he said, well, da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. And I was like, holy heck, the stuff that he told me, all I could say when he finished was, Holy crap, I, I, don't, I don't know how you've got to, to being here because, that, you know, most people that I know couldn't have carried that stuff. So you're an amazing human being for doing mm -hmm. that. I said, so have you, have you talked to your mum and dad? Have you talked to your teachers? And he, he and all the other kids looked at me with disdain and went, no. And I was like, why not? And he says, because every time I talk to my parents, they make it about them and they make me feel worse. Well, I had five kids at the time. I said, all right, so give me an example. He went, da-da-da. And I was like, holy shit, I do that. Yeah. Da-da-da, I do that. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. I do that, I do that, I do that. So in that situation, I do what every adult does in that situation. I went to the next kid. I said, so what about you? And he looked at me, a young, good-looking young Māori boy, and he said, well, first off, I'm gay. And in my dumb male head at the time, I went, oh, well, you know, that must be pretty tough for you, a young fella wrestling with your sexuality in, in the far north, which is a real gang area, hardcore Māori gangs in that area. So it must be, mm -hmm. it must be tough um, wrestling with your sexuality up here. And he went, oh, I'm fine with being gay. I said, oh, Okay. So what's the problem? He said, every time I hear the words faggot, homo, gay boy, pufta, even from my friends, I think to myself, so this is how society sees me and what's the point? Yeah. Now, that drove a knife through my heart. Why? Because at the time I was a stand-up comedian and not only was I saying that stuff out loud on stage, on television, and on radio, I was actively encouraging other people to use those labels. And that was the first time that it struck me that my joking words were killing people. And I went mm. to the other three kids and I heard their stories. And just as I'd recognized their journey through mental health in my story, I recognized my journey as a parent in their story. Yeah. And... It was the most emotional experience I've ever had in my life. And I realized there and then that I had to change. And um, I was driving back to Auckland that night and I was going, holy crap, 
and I was thinking about all of the things that I'd said to my kids um, over the years that, you know, so I had this really lonely journey back, but I had a gig to do. And I went down to Auckland where the gig was, and there were four comedians in front of me. I was the headliner. Um, they did their gig, and I'd already told myself I rewrote a whole routine on the way down to Auckland because there was no way I was going to go and use the homophobic, misogynist material that had been a hallmark of my material. Because when I left these kids, I said to them, thank you for showing me who I really am, and I vow to you now that I am going to change who I am and I'm going to do better. So I wrote this whole whole new routine when I was going back down to Auckland. I get on stage that night and it was a really drunk, heckly crowd that already made mincemeat of the other comedians. And my hallmark really was dealing with hecklers and my put down. So I get there, I'm trucking out this new material and they wouldn't have a bar of it. And then someone said something and old instincts kicked in. And in seconds, I was back to the old style, you know, putting people down, homophobic slurs, just all, you know, reverting to type. Yeah. And I remember driving home that night and I was in tears. And I got home and my wife was waiting up for me. She goes, what's wrong? And I told her about my day and I told her how I'd vowed to these kids that I was going to change. And I said to her, I, I couldn't even last five minutes. I'm on stage, and in five minutes, I reverted to type. And, um, you know, I just feel so embarrassed. I feel, you know, I feel like I've let these kids down. And basically, we sat there, and we had to make a call. And my wife said to me, well, just so you know, after your talk today, I've got three more schools up north that you heard about it, and they want you to go up there. So in that moment, I made the call that I had to either choose between stand-up comedy and making money or go and work in schools for nothing. And um, with my wife's help, I left stand-up comedy and started speaking in schools for um, two years, never earned a cent. Sold off my houses, sold off my cars, sold off my holiday home. Ended up living in an area in Auckland called Papatoy. A very low decile area in the rental house, too ashamed to tell my friends where I was living because I wanted to pursue this goal of helping kids. So for me, that's where it all started in 2013. So this has been just 100% transformative for you as well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not a guy that puts a toe in the water and mm. test how deep it is. I'm a both feet jump. It was the same when I moved into stand-up comedy. You know, I, I was working in the Merchant Navy at the time. I was earning $100,000, which is the equivalent of $250,000 nowadays back in 1990s. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a job that required me to do anything. And I just, uh, I quit that job and went and earned $30 a gig. That's just a trait of who I am. Once I commit to something, I give it everything. You said recently that Kiwis need to start thinking about what they're doing to encourage other people to speak up when they're struggling. What do you think the main challenges are when it comes to getting New Zealanders to speak up? 
you know, I think before we talk about solutions, we, we have to understand what the problem is. In New Zealand, we're great at coming up with solutions, but they're always solutions for problems we don't understand. So my journey in 2013 started there. I had lots of people who were hearing about the impact of my stories, and they thought basically... I should work on getting a whole lot of other celebrities to make themselves vulnerable and talk to kids. And my whole thing was, I need to know what the problem is first. So since 2013, um, I've spoken face-to-face and listened to over 250,000 kids up and down this country from the bottom of the South Island to the top of the North Island. And I've sat there and I have listened I have sat there and listened and and tried to get a scope on what the biggest problem in mental health today. Now, if you ask uh, anyone from the Ministry of Health, what's the biggest problem in mental health today? First thing they'll say, well, there's a myriad of problems. There's so many problems we can't go into it. But they'll Mm -hmm. focus on the rising rates of depression, anxiety, uh, bullying, suicide ideation, blah, blah, blah. These aren't the problems. These are a result of the problem. What I've discovered is the biggest problem facing not only our kids today, but all New Zealanders, is an overactive inner critic. Those Mm -hmm. little negative conversations that we have with ourselves every single day. You know, that little voice that has us second-guessing the things we do, the things we say, and the things we see. Uh, For example, oh, God, you could have done that job better. What an idiot. What did you say that for? I can't believe you said that. You're such a fool. Little negative conversations. And what I've also discovered is 40% of kids in school today, 40% of kids in school will have a major crisis often associated with some kind of suicidal thinking, whether it's a one-off thought, whether it's a recurring thought that grinds them down on a daily basis. So 40% of kids will have a suicidal thought before they leave school, not in their lifetime, before they leave school, which Mm -hmm. we panic about. But, you know, for me, it's not something that we should panic about. 100% of adults, whether you want to admit it or not, we've all had a suicidal thought. If you haven't walked out of your house at least once in your life going, holy crap, what's the point? Uh, You must be living in a marshmallow. You need to get out of that marshmallow you're living in and start living life. The statistic that we should really worry about, what I've discovered is 80% of kids who have suicidal thoughts never ask for help. And the reason they don't ask for help is because they are worried about what other people will think, what other people will say, and what other people will do with that information. So they're worried about society. They don't ask for help because they're worried about the blowback from society. Yet what is our message to young people and all people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts? Hey, reach out and ask for help. I mean, are you shitting me? I've just told you I'm scared of sharks and your solution is, hey, go swim with some sharks and the dolphin might come along. Why are we continuing to put pressure on our most vulnerable population to reach out and make the first move? I'm already suicidal, pretending I've got my shit together and you expect me to make the first move? Why don't we put pressure on the rest of the country who is in a good place right now and ask them, what are you doing to make it okay for young people to reach out and ask for help? And the honest answer to that, Vic, is 
none of us are doing enough. No one is yeah. doing enough. Now, think about this. If 40% of kids in school are having a suicidal thought before they leave school, every person in this country must have had at least one young person in their lifetime come up to them and go, hey, I'm having these thoughts. Can I talk to you about it? And for most of us, we've never, ever, ever had that conversation. And if you've never had that conversation, then my advice to you is go home, look in the mirror and ask yourself, what is it about me that young people don't feel comfortable talking about this stuff with me? If I can paint a picture for you, if there, say, is a young New Zealander today who does reach out to a close family member who then thinks, oh, my God, I need to oh, okay. get, get some support. There. I'll stop you right there. Yeah. Young people who are reaching out seldom reach out to family members. Okay. They, they sell, And the reason, the inner critic doesn't listen to family. Family have to love me. It's in the contract. So um, for any family members who are out there, who have lost a loved one to suicide, this isn't your fault. You know, this isn't, there is nothing that you could have done. Um, the only person an inner critic will listen to is a friend, a classmate, or a workmate. Yeah. And then it's knowing what to say. So paint your picture again. Okay, I'm going to start again. Thank you for that. So if there is a young person who reaches out to uh, someone close to them yep. um, and they're, they're suffering mental health issues. What's the starting point if somebody's able to try and access services and support for a young person in New Zealand in 2021? Where do they start and what challenges do they face? Ah, again, you see, that's starting at the problem. First yeah. things first, uh, when a young person starts talking to you, just listen. The first question I ask any young person who comes to me who's struggling is, what do you need? And nine out of ten times, they'll look at you dumbly and go, I, I don't know. And the reason they don't know is because no one has ever asked them that question before. Yeah. Remember, this is a mental health issue, and it is different for everybody. There is no category that you can put people in. So the first thing you ask is, what do you need? I don't know. And then I reassure them, I, I need you to think about it. Because in order for me to help you, I need to know what you need. And I've got all the time in the world, so you don't have to rush this. And while you're thinking about it, tell me what happened. Now, that question is crucial. Most people ask, so how are you? How are you and what happened are the same questions, but yeah. couched differently. When you say, how are you? You're asking me to talk about my feelings. I'm always, I've always been guarded about my feelings and I will always be guarded about my feelings. You're asking mm -hmm. me to talk about me and I'm not comfortable. But as soon as you say what happened, now I am talking about an event, sure. a scenario. So it's easier to open up. So the next thing is you get as much information as you can without burdening yourself. Next rule, it is not your job to fix anybody. 
It is not your job to take on anyone's problems. It's not your job to fix. We are not qualified to take on problems. We are not qualified to fix anybody. And that's really hard for humans because our natural instinct is, I'm going to try and fix it, and if I can't fix it, we run. Well, two things wrong with that. One, I don't want you to fix me. I'm unloading. And two, I don't want you to run away because that will make me feel worse. So find out what the problem is, find out what they need, and then gather as much information as you can as to where the solutions are. Find out if they want to talk to somebody, if they're unsure about wanting to talk to somebody, I will come with you. I will come with you to get the help you need. If you want to see a doctor, I'll come to them. If you want to get a counselor, I'll find the counselor. I'll get the counselor. I will come with you. If you want to talk to someone else, I will sit with you until you are comfortable. All I am qualified to give you is unconditional love and hope. What does that look like? Time. The most valuable thing we can give to people who are struggling is our time. Without yeah. fear of rejection, without fear of criticism, without fear of disappointment. And every time you open up your mouth, whether you're doing it out of kindness or and offering advice, you are breaking yeah. those cardinal rules. Right. Time means listening. Time means asking if someone wants to go and see a counselor. Who do you want to go and see? I go and talk to this person. I, you know, maybe I can, I can find someone. Let me ask around my networks. You'll be anonymous. Let me find out who's out there. Just leave it with me. But I am here. Giving people your time is the most vital thing you can. A sounding board, a trusted sounding board. And then over time, not in that moment. Then over time share your experience with people see the only time most of us make ourselves vulnerable for you know in front of uh, in front of other people is when they're telling us about an issue that's hurting them and what we think we're saying is this is a universal experience and you'll get over it what the other person is hearing is oh sir as soon as i start talking about me you make it about you way to go hot shot or worse Mm -hmm. oh so even when you're down in the dumps you're better than me. You can fix yourself, Mr. Perfect. Yeah. So it's about finding those right times to share those stories. Can I ask you, Mike, about your fundraising, which I know is so crucial to providing support and counselling for young people. Sure. Uh, I know about Gumboot Friday, which happens, is it once a year? Well, yeah, it's happening twice this year. Um, uh, so Gumboot Friday. So in 2013, I started speaking in schools. And at every school I went to, there was always someone who was in big trouble Mm -hmm. and couldn't, you know, they're on a long waiting list somewhere. So from 2013 to 2018, we, our charity, would fund private counseling for kids, for families that were desperate. I would just Mm -hmm. say to them, hey, go and find a counselor. Uh, We'll pay for it. How many, as many as you need. So we started building up a network of councils in different towns. When they said, I want to see this one, what was the result? Oh, they were really great. They were really helpful. This person wasn't that great, blah, blah, blah. So I started building up a network. And when people contacted me from those towns, I said, go and see this person, go and see that person. Uh, In 2018, a friend of mine came to me and she said, I've got this great fundraising idea for your charity. It's called Gumboot Friday. Having depression is like walking through mud. 
and most people are hiding so anyone out there that's hiding they'll see us all wearing our gumboots on this particular friday and they can make a donation for the charity and i thought it was such a good idea yeah that i didn't want to raise money for the charity i wanted to raise money for the biggest thing that our kids needed which was free kids counseling so um, we decided to fundraise for free kids counseling at its peak we had 3,800 um, counselors online. Now, when I first launched Gumboot Friday, I was attacked by many of the other organizations that are funded by the Ministry of Health saying, uh, there aren't enough counselors, we're raising people's expectations, this is stupid, all you're doing is causing more crisis. But what we discovered was, very quickly, there were more than enough counselors out there in the system to take care of our kids, there just weren't enough people to pay for it. So Gumboot Friday is our fundraising effort. What sets it apart from every other fundraising effort in this country is one 100% of people's donations go directly to the counsellors and our charity takes care of the admin. I made this vow. It's a really, it's a real shit business plan. Don't ever get a business plan of my camp. <laughs> but 100% of the money goes and uh, we cover the admin. Mike, you're, you're 10 years into the Key to Life Charitable Trust now. Um, yep. d- does it feel like it's gone fast and what is your ambition for the next decade for the trust? Uh, well, you know, people ask me all the time, what, what drives you, you know, you know, where do you get all this passion from? Um, I'm 59 years old. I have had two heart surgeries. I've had a stroke in 2007. I have got 15 years left tops, 15 years left. And I am going to use that 15 years, every breath that I've got to leave our young people in this country with a platform where they can help themselves you know we're building fences at the top of the cliff rather than funding ambulances at the bottom of the cliff and the difference between us and everybody else is um we have three arms to our charity do we have time for this are you good do no i am i am all ears seriously please just carry on okay so there are three arms to the key to life charitable trust there's the key to life charitable trust which is the administration arm this is uh the arm where the board sits and my general manager reports to their job is to make sure we're compliant so that's the formal arm they cross the t's and dot the i's then we have I Am Hope. I Am Hope is the face of our organization. I Am Hope is an organization started by young people affected by suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. The slogan I Am Hope came along when I asked suicidal kids one day, why don't you talk to people? Why don't you? And their response was so, you know, it was so natural and so obvious. We don't know who to trust. And I'm like, okay, so why don't you guys come up with a slogan that signals trust? And they came up with a wristband, and on that wristband was, I am hope. If you're wearing that wristband, you are saying to people, I am someone who will not judge you, I will not put you down, I will not gossip about you. All you will get from me, you can come and talk to me, and all you will get from me is unconditional love and hope. I won't try and fix you, I won't try and think, but if you want to go and get help, I'll come with you. What we do is I have four young ambassadors, most of which I have got out of suicide units around the country, um, that society has deemed that, you know, they're broken for life. I have taken them under my wing and now they go out and share 
with schools around the country about the negative conversations that they have with themselves. They don't talk about suicide. They don't talk about cutting. They don't talk about any of those experiences. Just the negative. So we normalize the inner critic and allow young people to recognize the first rule of mental health, which is no one has got their shit together. Mm-hmm. Everyone is pretending. We're all comparing ourselves to other people, but it's a false comparison because we're all wearing masks and we are, and we're all pretending we've got our shit together. So, I am Hope and the Key to Life Charitable Trust. We do not apply for, nor do we accept government funding. The reason we don't accept government funding is because once you accept government funding, you have to accept their protocols and you have to accept their way of doing things and their way while some of it's helpful a lot of it is not helpful and it will never work so we operate independently um then we have gumboot friday and um gumboot friday it needs funding we can't do it on our own so in the last couple of years we've raised about two and a half million dollars maybe three million dollars but the need is far greater so when we first started with gumboot friday we made unlimited sessions. Yes. Uh, People were allowed to apply for unlimited sessions. Now, we were mocked for that as well. You can't have unlimited sessions. That's unsustainable. Uh, What we discovered was that if you give people unlimited session, it takes away that angst of, I've only got four sessions, I've only got four sessions, I've only got six sessions. So you're, you're never comfortable. But if you make it unlimited, what we discovered was the average time spent was four and a half sessions per child. Also, what we discovered on our thing, boys weren't taking up. So in order to get, so again, in order to get free counseling in New Zealand, a kid has to go along to the doctor. The doctor has to diagnose them with a mental health issue, label them as being mentally unwell. Now that label follows that kid for the rest of their life. It affects their insurance, it affects their work, it affects everything about their life. So they put that label on them mentally ill, then you go on an incredibly long waiting list. What we discovered with ours, you go on to gumbootfriday.com, you click on find a counsellor, put in your location, the counsellors pop up. You click on the counsellor that you like, then your job's done. The counsellor has to get in touch with you inside 48 hours. If they don't get in touch with you in 48 hours, we get an alert saying that you haven't been contacted. Yep. And we contact the counsellor on your behalf. So... 99.9% of them are all responded to in 48 hours and they are seen inside on average six days. Yeah. The girl-boy ratio with the government free care, we are reliably informed it's about 20-80, 20% boys, 80% girls. When you make it voluntary, uh, it's 42% boys, 58% girls. So yep. boys who are the highest category in the, in, in the taking their own life cycle are more likely to go and do something if it is their decision rather than people telling them to go and uh, do it. So now I've given you all that. What was your question? <laughs> I wondered what. <laughs> uh, finally, I just wondered what, what is your ambition then for the next decade? Okay. So for the next decade, it is to make Gumboot Friday sustainable, make it a a lasting legacy so our kids can proactively take care of their mental health. So I want all kids, as they're coming up, to not only 
be able to go and see a counsellor for free anytime they want. I want them to know that going to see a counsellor is just a normal part of being human. It's yeah. what we do when we need help. It is the gym for the mind. Yeah, normalising it. That's it. That's yeah. all we have to do. Mike, I know we've been speaking for a fair while and I didn't want to curtail it. As I know we've only just scratched the surface of such a huge topic, but thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with such passion. I'm taking away with me today something you said a few minutes ago. The most valuable thing we can give to people who are struggling is our time, and That's that means it. listening. Finally, Mike, I wondered if you could answer one of my more general questions about New Zealand that I'm uh, sure. asking all interviewees at the end of the podcast. I wondered, could you tell me what one piece of advice would you give to a new Newcomer to New Zealand who has just arrived and is planning to make a life here. Wow. It's quite a big one. Yeah, no, that is a big one. Um, my, yeah, don't take it all seriously. <laughs> it's just, just, yeah, I just, my, my advice to anyone coming here is don't try and fit in. Just continue to be who you are. And the people that you will gather around you will be friends for life. If you try and fit in and you try and be what everyone else wants to be, all you're going to end up with is a whole lot of false friends. So just keep being you. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Take care, Vic. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Mike King for giving over some of that tireless energy to me today. If you're in New Zealand and need urgent emotional help, you can free call or text 1737 24 hours a day. You can find the I Am Hope Foundation and information about Gumboot Friday by going to iamhope.org.nz. What Kind of Country was written, presented and edited by me, Victoria Meakin. My producer in Christchurch is Bridget de Goldie and our original music was written and performed in New Zealand by Corey Bezecki. What Kind of Country is a broaden-up production. Mm-hmm.